We're in the book of James. We're in chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses 13 through 18. James chapter 1, verses 13 through 18, that's our text. If you're new or visiting, we like to teach through books of the Bible, chapter by chapter and verse by verse. And so that's where we are today. The topic, James encourages us to overcome temptation because we are the first fruits of the harvest who go forward with the gospel. The title of our message, Put Your Best Fruit Forward. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, this morning, as always, we believe that the Spirit of God is here to speak to the church. And we want to have ears to hear what he has to say through your word as it's anointed to our hearts. The scripture says that you discern between the soul and the spirit. In other words, you get way deep inside of us where we need to hear truth. And so whether we've come for help or for healing, whether we're jubilant or sad this morning, may your word uh, minister to us in power by the glory of Jesus Christ who's risen from the dead and is poised to return for us. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said, amen. It seems like every other movie being released is a superhero film. Doctor Strange is in theaters right now. At least eight more Marvel superhero movies are planned between now and 2019. DC Comics plans to release two movies per year between now and 2020. Every time a superhero is introduced, we get his or her origin story. Young Bruce Wayne's parents were killed before his eyes, providing his motivation for Batman to patrol the streets of Gotham City. When Krypton was imploding, Kal-El's parents launched him to Earth where he would become Superman. Bruce Banner hulks out because of his accident with gamma radiation. Of course, every superhero has his or her own arch villains who also require their origin stories. Now, I got to thinking about all this because of something James mentions in verse 18 of chapter 1 in this letter. He calls his audience the first fruits of God's creatures. It's more than just a metaphor. It's an origins story. First fruits is connected to the Jewish feasts of first fruits and Pentecost, both harvest feasts. Jesus rose from the dead on the feast of first fruits. About 10 days after he ascended into heaven, his disciples were waiting in an upper room on the day of Pentecost. The promise of the Holy Spirit came upon them like a mighty rushing wind. Tongues of fire rested upon them. They were all filled with the Spirit and began praising God in languages they had never learned, but which the crowds uh, gathered in the temple understood in their own various native tongues. The church was born. By calling them the first fruits, James reminded them of this origin, of their origin as the church. And so why remind them? Well, in the context, we'll see that remembering their origin would accomplish two things. Number one, first, it would put the temptations they were struggling with into perspective. And second, it would remind them of their mission to share their testimony. There's a sense in which every Christian of the church age is part of the first fruits of God's creatures. What was written to them is written to us. I'll organize my thoughts around two points. Number one, you're the first fruits of his creatures who understand the source of temptation. And number two, you're the first fruits of his creatures who undertake the sharing of your testimony. First of all, in verses 13 through 16, let's take a look at temptation. Superhero associations have really cool names. 
The Avengers, the Justice League, the X-Men, the Fantastic Four, Guardians of the Galaxy. I have to admit, the first fruits of God's creatures isn't all that exciting a name. I don't think I'd buy a comic with that name. But it means something powerful. Now, James won't mention first fruits until verse 18, but it's so important in this section that we need to discuss it before anything else. First fruits means very little to us on first reading because we are Gentile Christians. You might even be wondering right now, why are we starting in verse 18 with this obscure word? That's because we think like Gentile Christians. But remember, James was writing to the 12 tribes scattered abroad. He was writing to the first generation of Christians who were all Jews by birth. Furthermore, he was writing only about 10 or 15 years after the birth of the church. So very early on, he writes this letter, the first letter to be written to uh, the church in the New Testament era to an all-Jewish audience, Messianic Jews. Use the word firstfruits writing to Messianic Jews about 10 years old in the Lord, and you evoke thoughts of the feasts of firstfruits and Pentecost. This was part of their DNA. Now, Jesus rose from the dead on the feast of firstfruits. He also gave the Father a firstfruits offering. A few graves were opened, and dead people rose and were seen after his resurrection in Jerusalem. That's in the Gospel of Matthew. It's a strange passage that troubles people. Did it really happen? What does it mean? Sure, if you're a Jew, it doesn't trouble you at all. Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection, and he offered his father a first fruits offering. Several people were raised when he was raised. Our Lord gratefully brought before the Father a few early crops, you might say, of what would be an ongoing harvest throughout the church age. Now, the Feast of Pentecost occurring 50 days after first fruits represents the second or the summer harvest it's a larger harvest than the first obviously but it's still not the final in gathering as i said on the day of pentecost the church was born and when it was 3000 people were saved as a result of peter's preaching of the gospel along with the 120 believers in the upper room they became the first fruits of a greater harvest of souls to come as the gospel is preached during the church age every person saved throughout church history is a kind of first fruits of the greater final harvest at the end of the ages when God's people will be complete. And so that's what first fruits would have meant to James's original audience. It would have taken them back to the birth of the church and their birth as Christians. And that's what James wants to do because he's trying to reorient them at a time when they are disoriented, scattered out into Gentile realms, suffering severe trials and severe temptations. What about this word creatures? First fruits of his creatures. Well, it means we are new creations in Jesus Christ. When you become a Christian, old things pass away, all things become new. You're a new creature or a new creation, the Bible says. And that means that we have God the Holy Spirit living in us. He's the promise that one day the work of God uh, that has begun in us will be completed. We will be raised or raptured in a glorious eternal body incapable of sin. And on top of all that, we're commissioned to go tell others so that they can receive the Lord. And so uh, all of this is in this word, first fruits. James is writing to Christians scattered out in the world. He's talked to them about their trials, and now he's going to talk to them about their temptations. And really, isn't that kind of a 
very basic summary of what it means to be a Christian. You get saved, and then all of a sudden you have to put trials into perspective, and you have to deal with temptations as you're going forward with the gospel. And so it's all very appropriate for us as well as these individuals. And so while it's incredible what happens to us being born again, it's also difficult because we have those trials and temptations. And so now, after talking about trials for the opening verses of his book, he turns to temptations. From external trials to internal temptations. So verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. This seems abrupt. Were Messianic Jews really saying this? Were they blame-shifting to God? Well, the classic biblical example of blame-shifting is Adam and Eve. And since it involved the very first sin, it sets a precedent for us. It tells us a lot about how sin operates. God gave our first parents one prohibition. Don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Everything else, up for grabs. Enjoy yourself, just don't eat the fruit of this one tree. Eve ate, gave to her husband Adam, and he ate. The rest is, as they say, history. Sin and death began to reign in a now fallen creation. When God asked Adam about it, he blamed Eve. When God asked Eve, she blamed the devil. They shifted the blame from themselves to someone else, or they blame shifted. But Adam did more than blame Eve. Adam said this to God. He said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. He implied, actually he more than implied, that he would have remained innocent if God hadn't put Eve in the garden with him. Oh Lord, if you had just left me alone. If it wasn't for Eve, everything would be fantastic. But this woman you gave to me Likewise, Eve blamed the serpent. I think she learned from her husband. She was submissive in that way. It was the first act of submission. I'll submit to my husband's crazy logic. If, if I'm to fault, then the serpent is to fault, essentially blaming God for creating the serpent. Thus we see that, and this is important, all blame shifting ultimately is blaming God. So it wasn't that Jews of the diaspora were blaming God for their temptation. It's that anytime we don't take personal responsibility for sin, we are blaming God. God, this job you gave me. God, this wife you gave me. God, this husband you gave me. God, this church that I'm in. This situation, whatever it might be. Lord, if I wasn't in this situation with this person, no sin. So ultimately, you're blaming God. All of a sudden, this is totally applicable to each of us every day. James points out the folly of blaming God. He just flat out says, God cannot be tempted by evil. It means that God is so wonderful that he couldn't think of a way to tempt you to sin if he tried. There are some things God can't do because he's God. He can't lie, right? God can't be God and lie, so he can't lie. God can't think of a way to tempt you to sin he, not if he wants to, because he's so pure and he's so holy. It's outside of the realm of possibility. Since it's not in his nature to be able to tempt you, you can always be sure that God tempts no one. And so whatever else Adam and Eve could have been sure of, it wasn't God's fault what happened in the garden. 
It wasn't the fact that he created Eve or the devil that led them into sin. In mythology, gods are always flawed and they frequently wreak havoc on mankind. They are temptable and they tempt. We create those gods. And because we, re- we create gods like that, we tend to project that onto the God of the Bible. We, we don't automatically understand his purity and his holiness and the wonder of his love. And we tend to see him more as a human being than we ought to. But James is saying there is nothing evil about God and it's impossible for him to even think about tempting you to evil. And if you think it's God, you're wrong. Verse 14, each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Most commentators see this as a fishing analogy because enticed carries the idea of being lured. The world of fishing lures is super impressive. They've got some crazy names. The Storm Kickin' Gobi, the Zara Spook, the original Gitsit, the Gibbs Pencil Popper, and my favorite, the Swedish Pimple. Now, just a real quick story. I told this, this first service I mentioned this, and afterwards, a really sweet older gal came up and she goes, and she was Swedish, and she says, I'm going to tell you what a Swedish pimple is. And I, I was roaring with laughter. We had such a great time. But she verified for me that it's a, it's a way of fishing, a lure fishing. And, uh, and then she started to tear up a little bit because her dad used to fish this way in Sweden. And she hadn't thought about this for maybe 50, 60 years. And so I thought, way to go, Holy Spirit. Of all the crazy lure names that you could have picked, the Swedish pimple? Does God have a sense of humor or what? God wants us to know that the Holy Spirit is at work, and he says, I can do that in two words, Swedish pimple. And so tuck that away. If you have, write that in your Bible, Swedish pimple, and well, maybe not. But anyway, some of these lures spin, some make noise, some give off a scent, but they are all designed to attract fish to get them to bite. They appeal to a desire in the fish, namely to eat. Now, We don't want to push this analogy too far, and here's why. We can't really blame the fish for wanting to eat. We are actually fooling him. We are making the fish think the lure is his food, when in fact the fish is going to become our food. The fish doesn't watch QVC or shop at home and see the Swedish pimple being advertised to fishermen. And then see that in the water and think, I know that's that crazy lure from QVC, but I'm just going to go for it anyway. No, the fish actually thinks it's, it's food. It simulates food or something that attracts them. In our case, we know the lure is evil. We are not fooled by lures to sin unless we deceive ourselves about it. It isn't our normal natural desires that James is highlighting, but rather our desires to gratify appetites in excessive ways or in ways that we know to be wrong or evil or sinful. Guys, when that spam email arrives in your inbox saying Russian brides, you can be pretty sure that if you click on it to open it, it's going to be something that appeals to your basest desires. You're not fooling yourself thinking that it's going to be Russian brides who need help from the church. It's going to be something pornographic. I'm not being fooled. I'm deciding to be a fool. You're born again. You've got the Holy Spirit residing in you. 
You're guaranteed by him that you will one day be complete in Jesus Christ. In the meantime, you find the flesh still hanging on, seeking to fulfill its appetites in sinful ways. It's the flesh. It's not God tempting you. The problem is within. Notice, too, that James uses the words, his own desires. Not everyone has the same desires. A failure to recognize this tends to make us less compassionate with our brothers and sisters in the Lord. For example, I have no real desire to gamble. It's because I'm terrible at games. I might as well just give people my money if I'm going to gamble. Pam has taught me how to play hearts a million times. And I still couldn't sit down and play it today if I had to. And she's always shooting the moon. And I don't even know what that means in hearts, but it's a good thing. And then I'll play a card and she'll shake her head and she'll go, why did you play that card? You want that card. I go, oh, okay. (laughs) I just don't get it. And so gambling's not a thing for me. But some people have a real gambling problem. A few years ago, we were dealing with a a gentleman. They didn't go to the church, but they found us. And uh, it came out through his family, found out that he had gone into debt on credit cards by going to the various casinos in the valley. He was owed more than $20,000 on credit cards gambling. He must have never won. (laughs) And as bad as that was, uh, it led to a situation where he threatened to kill himself. It was kind of a standoff situation. And uh, everything worked out, but it it was a problem for him. And so for me to say, well, you shouldn't have a gambling problem. Well, no, of course you shouldn't, but that was a desire. That was his desire. I have my desires, you have your desires, and we need to recognize that just because we have defeated some part of our flesh, we think, doesn't mean someone else has. We need to be considerate of the struggles others have if we're going to be able to help them and certainly not stumble them. I should refuse to yield to these desires, and I can, thanks to Pentecost and the indwelling Holy Spirit. That's what this has to do with first fruits. James is reminding them of what happened to them when they got saved. They received the Holy Spirit, and now they can yield to the Spirit rather than yield to the flesh. If instead I indulge myself, there are going to be consequences. Verse 15, when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. It may sound crude, but if you have intercourse, you just might conceive a baby. If you yield to lust, it will conceive, and a hideous baby named sin will be born. Full grown is a scary, terrifying term. It doesn't seem that way in the context, but what it means is this. It means that sin comes to full maturity as a settled habit in my life. You might even call it a life-dominating sin. And so what James is saying is that a small indulgence indulged in can become so dominating that it ultimately ruins your life and the lives of others that you love. A small indulgence where you think, well, I I would never really do that. I'll just dwell on that for a little while. Over time can become a life-dominating sin. And then he says it brings forth death. Well, that can't be good. We need reminding that sin always kills something. Maybe not all at once, maybe not obviously, but it always kills something. In the Garden of Eden, Satan told Eve that eating the forbidden fruit would be a good thing 
to bring her and Adam into a greater knowledge of life. She thought her quality of life would improve. Is that funny? Think about that for a minute. You're in the Garden of Eden. You've got the perfect guy. You're the perfect gal. No Botox. No liposuction. You're going to live forever. God comes and hangs out with you every afternoon. You've got everything you want to eat. All the animals are there hanging out with you. They probably even talk to you. The serpent talked to Eve. She didn't think that was odd. So, I mean, you're in paradise. And then you think, maybe the grass would be greener if I ate the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And you do. And did eating that forbidden fruit improve Eve's quality of life? Well, quite the opposite. It brought death. Adam and Eve died spiritually. They began to die physically. And ultimately, they did die. Worse, they brought down the whole creation and passed on a sin nature to their offspring. Every sickness, every suffering, every hurt, every evil that you see in the world today is part of the death from that original sin. Many of you have experienced death as a result of your sin or as a result of the sin of another person in a relationship with you. Sin killed a marriage. It killed a friendship. It killed your family. It killed your career. It killed your church. In some cases, sin literally kills someone. When that drunk driver goes out there and slams head on into your teenage driver and kills that person, that's death by sin with its immediate terrifying consequences. And so James is saying, hey, when you sin, whenever you sin, whenever I sin, something dies. And it can be something incredibly precious. Sin can only kill. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. As I said earlier, we're not being fooled into sinning. We are not deceiving, uh, being deceived. We are deceiving ourselves. If you've fished, most of us have or are familiar enough with fishing to understand this, you've probably hooked yourself with a lure. Not on purpose, of course, but you know, maybe you're on a, one of those little boats and they cast out and the next thing you know you're hooked and, oh, man, does that hurt makes you want to give up fishing for the poor fish. I mean, that thing, imagine swallowing that. Well, I think what James is saying is that sin would be like a fisherman knowingly swallowing a lure, but thinking it's okay because, after all, you're hungry and it, t- it looks so good. It, it, this is an incredible image to me. So you're out fishing. You forgot to pack a lunch. You're not catching anything, and you're not going to eat it raw if you do anyway. And all of a sudden, you're looking at your Swedish pimple. And you think, man, man, does that look good. I know this is a fishing lure. I know that if a fish swallows this, it's going to rip its guts out when I try and get it out of there. But I'm really hungry. I'm going to give it a try. Maybe my esophageal juices will break the thing down and I can have a meal out of this. That's what James is saying. That's how dumb it is for you and I to sin. We like to think, oh, no, I was lured into it. And that's why I said this analogy breaks down. Yeah, you were lured, but you knew what was going on. You knew that it wasn't food, that it was the Swedish pimple, and you swallowed it anyway. And now, guess what? You are ripped up as a result of it. You know, James takes it on the chin for having a reputation for being in your face and and just kind of, you know, looking at you. Hey, James doesn't know me and he's calling me a sinner. No, James knows you and he knows me. And he's not just calling you a creepy sinner. 
He's calling you back to a higher life. He's saying, hey, you've been blaming this on God. You've been blaming this on your boss. You blamed it on your church. You blamed it on your husband or your wife. When you start blaming it on yourself, then you're going to get through this thing. Then you're going to get over this thing in the power of the Holy Spirit who indwells you. Some of us might be in one of these stages right now, desire or conception or birth. Believe, James, that it can only lead to sin and death. Take responsibility and repent before something precious dies. Somebody in either first or second service is in one of these stages, perhaps in your marriage. And your marriage is about to die because you're about to sin in a way that's going to bring ruin and terror to your family. You don't have to do that. Don't follow that lure. Don't give in to that desire. The grass is not going to be greener on the other side. Eating of that one tree is not going to be any better than everything you already have. You say, well, my life is miserable. That's your fault because you're not thinking about being the first fruits of his creatures because you're not thinking spiritually about what the Lord has done for you. Yeah, but he leaves me in this trial and I have all these temptations. Okay, That's what we call life. Think of the advantages you have in overcoming them with Jesus. And repent and get back into this thing called Christianity. Quit blame shifting. Take responsibility for your attitudes and actions. And this is the beauty of it. Because you're in this exclusive association, the first fruits of his creatures, you absolutely can take responsibility. You can refuse to yield to your lusts. No matter the lure, you don't have to kill things. You can be a giver of life. In verses 17 and 18, you're the first fruits of his creatures who undertake the sharing of your testimony. Superheroes usually rise to some enemy. The Avengers were assembled when Loki was bargaining with an alien race to take over the earth as its emperor. What is the enemy that the first fruits of his creatures has risen to overcome? Nothing less than the gates of hell. This phrase, the gates of hell, it doesn't occur here. It's found only once in the scriptures in Matthew 16, but it's pertinent to our discussion here because it involves directly the church and its mission, and that's what we're talking about. Jesus said, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So Jesus promised us, the church, that the gates of hell, the power of hell, could not prevail against the church. Gates are used as a symbol of the general power of a city because that's where the attack would take place and however strong the gates were, that's how strong the enemy was. And we would say, well, hell is a pretty powerful enemy. And it seems like the church is so weak. I read articles all the time about how the church is failing. Every other article is about the failure of the church or a church or Christians and we're not doing what we're supposed to do and all that. And then Jesus said, he goes, guys, let me tell you something. What I'm doing cannot fail. It it might not always be the greatest, you know, expression of the church. We have our ups and downs. Churches split. There's sin in the church. Sure, all that. But Jesus said, you guys, it will never fail. The church is going to go on through each generation until Jesus takes us home. We are assured victory against super powerful spiritual foes, both without and tempting us 
and the, you know, tempting our flesh. And so that's what we're talking about. We are the first fruits of his creatures. We will accomplish our mission from generation to generation until the Lord comes for us. And so verse 17, he says, every good and perfect gift is from above, comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. What a weird verse. Uh, What does that mean? Well, in context, once you read verse 18, I think you can argue that the good and perfect gift that comes from above is who? The Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. So now that I understand this first fruits idea and what it refers to, when I read that, I think, well, there was one really great perfect gift that came from above given by the Father, and that was the Holy Spirit. And that's what I think these Messianic Jews scattered around the world would have gotten gotten from this. The words father and gift are reminiscent of things Jesus said about the Holy Spirit, by the way. Jesus called the coming of the Holy Spirit upon his disciples the promise of the Father. When he told them to wait in Jerusalem for this, he said, it is the promise of the Father. And then he once said to them, if you know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? James uses this word good in that same way to describe the act of giving. It is supremely good of God to give the Holy Spirit. Perfect describes the gift itself. It can mean that the gift is complete, having everything you could ever require. Because the Holy Spirit is God and he is a person and he lives inside of us, he is a complete, perfect gift. He's not learning, he's not growing, he's not trying to experience things along with us. You know, it's not like one of those crazy movies where the angel, you know, becomes a human and doesn't know what peanut butter is, or you know what I mean? And they get their mouth stuck to me and, and walking through. No, the Holy Spirit, who is God, this perfect person, is now living in you to guide you and to direct you. All you need to do is yield to him. Jesus said that after he went to heaven, the Holy Spirit would come to be with us. Being born again and having the Holy Spirit is like having Jesus with you 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Father of lights, that's a Jewish expression for God as the creator, probably taken from the Genesis account of creation where we see God say, let there be light. It makes sense that James would mention God as creator here because we are his new creations. We're the first fruits that promise one day God will create a new earth and new heavens. One of the things that's wrapped up in this idea of the first fruits and of us being the first fruits is that God has begun something he's going to finish and one of the things he's begun that he's going to finish is to redeem lost creation, fallen creation, and make a new heaven and a new earth. And so when I see a Christian, I I see something more than just a forgiven person on their way to heaven. I see God solving the sin problem for the fabric of the universe and making a new heaven and a new earth. And that's what James thinks big. I mean, he's a big thinker. God's original creation was marred, but he has redeemed it and he will recreate it. There's a cosmic drama of redemption being played out on the earth as men and women are saved. We are headed towards the consummation of God's plan to save us. We enjoy fellowship now, but especially then as his new creatures in his new creation. Then he says, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. The lights God created, the sun and the stars, as magnificent as they are, as stunning as they are, they all have variations and they cast shadows or they cause them to be cast. They're not perfect. I think this too looks forward to the new creation. In the revelation of Jesus Christ, we read this, this is first of all from 21, 23. 
The city had no need of the sun or of the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God illuminated the city. The Lamb of God is its light. And then in Revelation 22, 5, there shall be no night there. They need no lamp nor light of the sun, for the Lord God gives them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. And so there'll be no more springing ahead or falling behind, no more sun at all, just the pure light emanating from the Lord. Verse 17 then tells us what we have now on the earth, the Holy Spirit, as we are looking forward to the consummation of the age and the new creation. You know, lately I've told you this, and I don't know how widely read you are, how much things you listen to on the radio from a Christian perspective, but it's become super popular to quit talking about the coming kingdom, uh, about the return of the Lord, about eternity. The argument goes that we're, we're not really affecting people now because all we do is think about wanting to get out of here. Hey, I'm willing to get out of here. I, I sometimes see the whole earth as when you took the wrong turn in L.A., you ever done? Everybody's got a story like that. They ended up in a place that didn't seem like, you know, you should be there. You definitely need directions, but you're not asking anybody for them. So yeah, I'm all about that. Paul the Apostle was all about that. He says, man, I have a desire to go home. I want to get out of this body and this, this suffering. He goes, but, you know, if the Lord wants me to stay here, then I'm going to preach the gospel. And so, you know, I, I don't understand other than people get influenced by things they read But you may have seen it subtly or more overtly, but people, they don't want to talk about these things. James was saying, hey, you guys, you're scattered out into the world. Trials are hammering you guys left and right. And temptation is overwhelming you because you have forgotten what you are right now and where you're headed. You've forgotten you're the first fruits of God's new creatures and that one day you'll be resurrected or raptured and everything will be complete and perfect. And in the middle of all that, you don't have to give up on your trials and you don't have to yield to temptation because God's given you his Holy Spirit. Verse 18, of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Brought us forth, that is the new birth. It's being born again, it's regeneration. Of his own will doesn't just mean it was the act of God operating by grace upon us. That's true. But it means that regeneration is the will of God for all mankind. It's in harmony with Peter saying that God is not willing that anyone should perish, but that everyone would come to eternal life. Now, of course, not everyone does. Not everyone is saved. Jesus, we're told, is the Savior of all mankind. But then the writer adds, especially those who believe. And so we proclaim that everyone can be saved. And by God's grace, he frees their will to make a decision to receive or reject him. And those who believe in Jesus Christ are saved. They experience their own Pentecost, right? Not the day of Pentecost, but a day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit comes and indwells them and they join this first fruits movement. And this is why when you were first saved, if you got saved as an adult, you had so much victory over the world and over sin. Sometimes I think I was better off the first few months I got saved. Now I'm an old, crusty Christian that worries more than I did then. I got saved and it was like, oh, my house is in foreclosure. Praise the Lord. 
I let my uh, one. I was a sales manager. And I let one of the gals, a saleswoman, borrow my car. Ten minutes later, she came back in all disheveled, and, she, and I said, "What's the matter with you? Did you wreck my car?" And she goes, "Well, actually, I did." I go, oh, "Okay." <laughs> I went out in my little Honda Prelude, greatest car ever made. It's all crunched. I said, "Oh, praise God for body work." Now I walk around my car and I think, "Man, what's going on? Where did that scratch come from?" Temptation, all the things I did that were sinful, I didn't want to do those things. What an idiot, what idiot would do that? And so that's what, I think that's what James is about in this epistle. It's like, hey, your trials have got you so beat down, your temptations are so immense that you've forgotten who you are and where you're headed and what you're supposed to do on the way there. And so James isn't some old coot who just wants to get even with people and just is looking at you, you adulterer. You know, I mean, James has an incredible compassion for the real Christian life. What do first fruits do? They share their testimony with lost sinners to bring them into a harvest of souls that cannot be stopped in the church age in which we live. And that's the work that James wanted them to get back to. So let me tell you a little bit more about the Feast of Pentecost as we close, or rather... These are some comments by a guy named Arnold Fruchtenbaum, a Dallas Seminary graduate with a Jewish heritage. He's a Messianic Jew. Has some insight into these things. In the Old Testament, he says, two loaves of bread were to be offered on a single sheet and waved before the Lord. The Feast of Pentecost was fulfilled by the birth of the church, which is composed of both Jewish and Gentile believers united into one body. One loaf represented the Jews. One loaf represented the Gentiles. The single sheet represents the fact that Jews and Gentiles are united into one body. Another thing learned from the Old Testament observance of this feast is that these loaves were to be leavened. Leaven, when used symbolically in Scripture, is a symbol of sin. It is the Jewish and Gentile sinners who are saved by grace through faith, then brought into this one body, the church. Furthermore, these loaves were made of wheat. Wheat and harvest are common symbols of evangelism and salvation in the Gospels. In Matthew chapter 3, the concepts of wheat and harvest are connected with the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which began on the Feast of Pentecost and thereby bringing the church into its existence. We miss all of this because we're not Jews. You and I have never celebrated, I would wager, the Feast of First Fruits or the Feast of Pentecost the way Jews did. But these Jews, reminded of this, would see these connections. They would see this symbolism. And it would bring them back to the joy of their salvation. Hey, I'll tell you, nothing will kill the joy of your salvation like being scattered out in the world, having somebody spoil all your goods, not having a job, being severely persecuted, and at the same time having temptations like crazy. And so James says, let's think about who we are. Let's think about the symbolism of being the first fruits. Let's get back to basics. Let's get back to when you guys first got saved and you were in Jerusalem. You didn't even want to go home. You just hung around in Jerusalem and God provided for all of you, thousands of you. 3,000 on the day of Pentecost, 5,000 more a few days later, and hundreds and thousands in between. And they just hung around. They say, hey, we're not going home. We need to know more about Jesus. So wherever the food's going to come from, praise the Lord. It's going to happen. And so that's what James is doing. If we see all these connections, we see how incredibly encouraging this is. 
James is here to help us defeat sin and then go around declaring the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray.